You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if uh, you're with the 3's and 4's class, you're welcome to be dismissed to your class. Thank you for worshiping with us. Um, can I get somebody to get some copies of God's Word? Some extras? Fabian, you getting some? First Corinthians chapter 5, if you need a copy of God's Word, just slip up your hand and Fabian's going to come down the aisle with that. And we'll begin reading, um, last week we covered verses 1 through 5, this week we'll be finishing out the chapter, verses 6 through 13, but we're going to read the whole chapter for context this morning. Am I on? Can you hear me? Okay, good. I'm sunk back farther, so I can't hear myself the same. Do you notice the stage is done? Isn't that cool? All that room for activities back there? Room for more people? Praise the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you're new with us this morning, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, it's our normal practice at the church to work verse by verse, passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph, book by book, through God's Word, trying to explain what we see there. And the book that we're working through is 1 Corinthians, and the chapter that we come to is chapter 5. A chapter, which we discussed last week, is one of the most neglected, because it is one of the most difficult chapters in the New Testament Not necessarily to understand, the message of it's clear, what's difficult about it is the actual application of this text. It goes against everything that our culture teaches about what a church really is. It goes against everything that our culture teaches about what love really is. This chapter is hard to stomach for the modern American self. What's represented here is the true biblical gospel and what the biblical gospel means for your life and our life together as God's redeemed people in local churches in real places. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is Paul addressing a very real situation and a very real church in first century Corinth. According to chapter 5, there is an individual within the Corinthian church, claiming to be a Christian person, and they have given themselves, as we saw last week, to undeniable, ongoing, and unrepentant sin. According to the text, he has entered into an ongoing physical relationship with what is presumably his stepmother, but potentially his biological mother. All we're told is that this man is in a physical, intimate relationship with his father's wife. And he apparently continually gathers with the church, claiming to be a Christian, while this ongoing lifestyle choice is a reality. But the problem that Paul seeks to address is not the situation itself, but the fact that the church community is ignoring it. They have swept under the rug this man's sin. And what chapter 5 is, is a pleading, the Apostle Paul pleading with them to recognize their God-given responsibility as the people of God to confront 
such sin. He calls them specifically to mourn over this man's sin, to recognize that this is not something to be ignored, that if you love this man, if you care for this man, you will be emotionally saddened by the spiritual state of this man to the point where it will drive you to action. And the action he calls them to take is to assemble together, like they do every week on the Lord's Day, to assemble together and then make a corporate decision. If this man does not repent, remove him from the congregation. Deliver the man to what he calls the realm of Satan, to a life where he doesn't enjoy the benefits of a Christian community who's speaking truth into his life. He calls them to remove him into what he calls the realm of Satan, a place where you don't have the gift of God's grace in the Christian community. It's a hard command. Uh, It exposes a lot about what God really intends his church to be, though, right? I mean, Paul's assumption here that we saw last week is that the church is not just a moment you attend to listen something. The church is actually a group of people doing life together in this spiritual war that we live in and caring for one another, so much so that we'll even confront the sin in one another in a loving way. The church is a place where people love you, care for you, speak truth to you, and guide you away from the path of destruction and to the path of life. Paul makes clear the motivation here is love. Remove this man from the church so that he might be saved on the last day, that he might realize that he is far from God. So now with all that in mind, that kind of like boom, overview, in case you weren't here last week, let's dive into the second part of this and tease the rest of this text out. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. That's last week. So if you missed last week, go listen to last week's sermon. Now this is this week, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat 
with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to study a text of Scripture, which at first glance is more difficult than it, than it is beautiful. And God, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty in it, the goodness of this, the, the grandeur of this, the, the gift that this is, a community of faith who cares about me, like legitimately cares about me. To the point where they would confront me and, and tell me the truth. Help us to be that kind of community, Lord. That, that as we saw last week, that the kind of community that believes that love demands the truth, God. I pray, help us to understand the truth and to see how it is beautiful this morning. And good and precious. So, Father, I pray that you would speak through me now with crystal clarity. And that you would confront sin in our hearts, and that you would stir our hearts to worship the giver of every good gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Now, let me pause there, because this is a repetition of something he's already said. Earlier he said, you're arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Verse 2. So I'm going to pause and just ask a quick question of that. How does boasting have anything to do with the tendency of Christian communities to totally ignore the spiritual condition of their brothers and sisters? What does arrogance have to do with you not addressing the sin in someone else's life that you love? How does arrogance lead them to neglect this responsibility? Well, I think there's a lot of ways. I think you've got to pause and ask that. There's a lot of ways. Arrogance has a way of crowding out repentance in every scenario. What happens with arrogance is that we think highly of ourselves, and as we think more highly of ourselves, we tend not to care for the needs of others, right? Humility is not um, thinking less of yourself, like downgrading yourself. Humility is thinking about yourself less. Does that make sense? (laughs) So arrogance is thinking about self more. And guess what you're not thinking about when you're arrogant? You're not thinking about the spiritual needs of those people around you. We tend not to care for the need of others the more proud we are. We tend to take less seriously the authority of God's word. We tend to think ourselves sort of above the word in certain areas of our lives. Or perhaps we think ourselves to be in the right no matter what. Or, or we don't worry about this man's sin because it's not really going to affect me. It's not really going to affect the rest of the church. And to this, what Paul says is, if that's you, your boasting is not good. And then he asked a question, which is a really weird question for us. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I doubt there's too many people in here that was making their own bread this week um, and are familiar with what in the world leaven is, okay? Maybe there's a couple of you, but not many of us are familiar with this language. I certainly would not be the kind of person who makes bread with my off time. 
But you need to understand that Paul's writing and using this language because everybody would have been familiar with this, okay? He's introducing an analogy to help them to understand exactly what's taking place in this situation. And this is the truth he's trying to get across with this question, and then I'll fill in the gaps. This is the truth. Truth number one, unaddressed sin is serious and it spreads. So the question about leaven introduces an analogy that Paul's going to carry on through verse 8. Hear the words of New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. He's going to kind of explain this analogy to you, and I thought it was a good explanation, so, and I thought it would be helpful if you could read it while I, I quote him. Listen to him explain, if you can see those little bitty words. Leaven is a little portion of a previous work's batch of dough that had been allowed to ferment. And when added to the next batch, the leaven made the bread rise. It carried with it, though, the slight risk of infection, especially if the process was left to go on indefinitely without starting a fresh uh, with a completely new batch. So you take a little bit of the bread, you let it ferment, you use it for the next batch. And then out of that bread, you take a little piece, you let it ferment, and you can see how over time, what was the little bit of fermented part actually r- provides this risk of infection if that process goes on indefinitely, right? Each year, the Israelites, in part, perhaps as a health provision, had to cleanse their homes and the temple of all leaven. New batches all the way around. Carson goes on. He says, Paul emphasizes that although in only a little part of the church, one person, in fact, the evil would inevitably, slowly, but surely spread through the whole community if left unchecked. The example of willful sin in the church can have serious effects. Like leaven in bread, unchecked sin in the church spreads through the whole and irretrievably changes it. So, Hope you see the analogy here. Sin never stays put. And see, one of the problems that that we all have is this tendency, this, this arrogant tendency to believe that sin in our own heart and lives, or in this case, sin in the church, is tameable. That you can leash it, that you can feed it, keep it alive, but you can. Leash it. You can set boundaries on it. Sin never affects only the individual who engages in it. Never. Your sin is never only about you. It always impacts another person. Always. Sin always overflows. It always takes more territory in your life than you originally allotted to it. It spreads. When a community of faith, well, well, first off, when an individual decides that they're going to feed a small sin, they're fooling themselves to think that that small sin is not going to grow and devour them. When a community of faith ignores sin, as if it's not that dangerous, as if it's not destructive, as if it's something that can simply be overlooked or even befriended at no great cost to anyone, the church then communicates its approval and at the very least its tolerance of sin to both young and old members. Basically, when a church says, we're not going to address sin, we're going to sweep this under the rug, we're not going to deal with this, the church disciples the whole congregation to think that sin is actually not that big of a deal. To ignore sin 
essentially disciples the church not to take seriously the things God takes seriously. And this is something that we cannot do as individuals. This is something that we cannot do as a community of faith. We cannot disciple people in our own church to befriend something that is trying to destroy them. A church that never addresses sin in the lives of her members and never does what Paul is commanding to do here in 1 Corinthians 5, they will be a church over time that will develop a high view of self, a low view of God's holiness, and a lackadaisical comfortability with sin. They will say they are just believing the gospel of grace. They are just opening the door wide as they can to include as many people. But in the same moment, they will be contradicting the gospel of grace they say they believe in. We believe in a gospel of grace here in this church. We have it on the sign behind me. By his grace, for his glory. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. Romans 5, 8, that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We believe that no matter how much we've sinned or how much we are sinning, that God has, by his grace, made a way of salvation through faith in Jesus alone. We believe, Romans 5, 20, that where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. We'll sing it at the end of this service. We are forgiven Based off of Jesus' righteousness for me, not my righteousness for him. That's the gospel message. But that gospel message does not somehow make me more comfortable with the sin that put my Savior on the cross. That gospel does not somehow make me more accepting of the sin which nailed Jesus on the day of Calvary. That gospel only increases my desire to obliterate that sin as the evil it is trying to destroy me and my loved ones. The gospel means that by God's grace, we are freed to be at peace with God. It also means that we are freed now to make war with that stinking sin that would have kept me from my God. That gospel frees me to hate my sin. That's what it does. It does not free me to befriend it. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is exasperated by the thought of the question, by no means. How can we, how can we, who died to sin, still live in it? That's the argument of Romans. God's done something to me that makes me want him more than the sin. And that is the arguments of 1 Corinthians. Look back at the text, 1 Corinthians 5 Verse 7, what are we to do with this? If the little leaven leavens the whole lump, if it spreads, if, if, if sin is something that, that is serious and it spreads. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Now, listen to the argument. Here's what you do. Cleanse it out. Remove it. Here's the argument. That you may be a new lump. So that means new bread, no leaven in you. As you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, the tense of all those words is important when they happen and whether they're completed or not. And this is truth number two. Truth number two, we address sin in the church because of Christ's finished work for the church. 
So here's the command. Cleanse out the old leaven that, that you may be a new lump. And again, he's building off this analogy. Jews would have been very familiar with this. Every year, the Jews would participate in a feast, the feast of unleavened bread. They would cleanse all their homes. They would cleanse the temple before they came together to celebrate the Passover feast. Leaven became symbolic in the idea of uh, the Jews' mind for corruption, for unrepentant sin. And so the responsibility of the people of God was to cleanse their whole house of this and cleanse the whole temple of this so that they might rejoice in the worship of their God. And now Paul says, in a similar way, you church of the living God, cleanse yourself of that which is impure that you might prepare yourself to worship the living God. And let me pause, clarify again. Now, wait a minute, are you teaching that the church must actively cleanse out sin in their hearts and cleanse out people who are unrepentant in their sin in order to earn their salvation? Is that the argument of this text? No. I'm saying that the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle says this, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. I'm saying that God has called the church to actively pursue practically what we claim to be positionally in the eyes of God. So why do we cleanse out sin from our hearts? Why would we ever remove someone from church membership? Because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. He's made us to be a cleansed people. He has cleansed us eternally. Christ Jesus has been sacrificed for us. He accomplished something for us and in us. And, and all of this discussion, what it does in Paul's mind, it triggers the concept of the Exodus. When you think about unleavened bread, when you think about um, the Passover lamb, he's grounded in the story, one of the most important stories in the Bible, the story of God's redemption of his people from slavery and his drawing them to the promised land by his grace. The great biblical historical moment where God foreshadows what he did for you. Think about the story with me for a minute. The people are enslaved, oppressed, beaten, and impoverished under the rule of a malicious Pharaoh, God declares wrath is coming on the land. But if the people would sacrifice a spotless lamb and smear the blood on their doorpost, God's wrath would pass over their home. And they would receive mercy and grace rather than wrath and judgment. And once God's wrath passed over their home because of their faith in the, the blood of the spotless lamb, what were they were supposed to do in that moment? They were supposed to jump up in haste, no time for the bread to rise. They would grab their unleavened bread and whatever they could carry with them, and then they would make their journey out of the, the land of slavery and death and into the promised land God had, had promised to them, only made possible through their faith in the blood of a spotless lamb. That's the Exodus story. That's our story. That the wrath of God has passed over us because Christ became our Passover lamb and we trust that he shed his blood on our behalf. He takes all the wrath of God on himself so that we might be freed from slavery in the land of death and freed to make our journey to the promised land we've been promised. And because of that, because that 
finished work of the Lamb of God, guess what we do not do as freed people? In our freedom from slavery, we do not sit in Pharaoh's kingdom of idolatry eating leavened bread. Because Christ has saved us from the eternal hell that our sins deserve, guess what we do not do? We do not make a peace treaty with our sin that once enslaved us, do we? Because of Christ's finished work for us, because he cleansed us for an eternal promised land, we, in the right here and now, practically strive by faith to become what he promised we will be forever. This is what it means to be a Christian. Listen very carefully. There's a past completed reality, a present ongoing reality, and a fixed future reality. You got me? You got my timeline here in my mind here? Past, present, future? Christ has already cleansed me positionally. That means my status before the one true living God is unchangeably declared righteous because Christ has died for me. Christ will cleanse me completely. One day, what he's declared I am will be reality. When I see Jesus face to face, there will be no more sin left in me. None. I will be, I will be as he is. In the present. Right now, what's he doing? Christ in the present is right now cleansing me practically to become what I already am positionally and what I will be completely. And what Paul is saying here is that if there is someone in the church who claims that Christ has cleansed him positionally and that Christ will cleanse him completely, but if that person has no interest in being cleansed practically in the here and now, that brother or sister might be self-deceived. You get that? There's a missing link here between these realities. And so his command in verse 8 for the church is this. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with old leaven. It is not with unchanged people. The leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, there's two ways to... uh, interpret two potentially overlapping ways to understand this uh what was the meal jesus partook in the night before he was crucified anybody know audience participation passover meal right passover meal right the passover meal was in the old testament a meal instituted by god For the people of God to remember every year the day he saved them by the blood of the spotless lamb, delivered them out of slavery through the split waters of the Red Sea and toward the promised land. Every year, you eat this meal to tell this story to your kids. Remember what I've done for you. And so they would celebrate this. I mean, this is like, I mean, we're doing Thanksgiving here in, 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 in a few weeks, and you've got traditions, and you've got family, and you're coming, and you talk about what you're thankful for. I mean, the Passover meal was a celebration. You eat, and you drink, and you talk, and you remember God loves us. He saved us, and you retell the old story that made you who you are, and, and why you're no longer building stuff for Pharaoh, right? That's the Passover feast. And so what Paul could be saying here is saying, Christians, let our whole lives is a big celebration of the festival. 
Our whole lives, a big celebration that we ain't building stuff for Pharaoh anymore. That we got a new kingdom to live in, right? So I think that's in part what he's saying here. But there is a moment in church life where we celebrate the festival in very real and symbolic way. And that moment in church life is the moment that Christ commanded us to participate in the Lord's Supper. You see, on that night before Jesus was about to be the spotless lamb who was going to die for the sins of the world that you might be passed over, he's celebrating the Passover meal, and he goes off script, and he basically assigns new meaning. There's a new meaning to this meal because now the fulfillment is here. There's a greater salvation than the one Moses led you out of, all right? And this is what Jesus says, Luke 22. They're all sitting around remembering the lamb, and, and Jesus sort of goes off script. And this is what he says. He says, he took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying... This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, until this moment throughout history, they've done this in remembrance of God's salvation through the spotless lamb. Now he says, no, no, no. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this, this cup that is poured out for you, it's the new covenant in my blood. Partake in this bread and this cup as a symbolic remembrance that I've done something for you greater than the Exodus story. I have saved you from the wrath of God. And so, so Christians, when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is what people have done for thousands of years. We're remembering Jesus' blood was poured out for me and you and you and you and you. And Jesus' body was broken for me and you and you and you. And we together share in relationship with Jesus and relationship with each other. Jesus instituted two ordinances for the church that we do here at this church. Baptism, your initiatory right into the community, your first step, right? One time, first step of obedience, proclaiming your allegiance to Jesus. I'm with Jesus and I'm with all of you. That's baptism. The Lord's Supper, though, is an ongoing ordinance at which time, when it's celebrated, we together proclaim our allegiance to Jesus over and over and over again. When the church is assembled, we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember what he's done, and we celebrate this is the foundation of our unity as a people. And I think that what Paul is saying is when you gather to do the Lord's Supper, when you celebrate the festival, verse 8, do it not with old leaven, the leaven of mouse evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, now we're going to study this more in depth later, and we're in the weeds, and I just need you to hang on. We're going to study this a little bit more later, but I need you to flip in your Bibles with me to chapter 11. Chapter 11, because he's going to talk specifically about the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 11. This paragraph should make you uncomfortable. Paul's giving some instruction about how we celebrate the festival here. Verse 25, 1 Corinthians 11. And the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup's the new covenant of my blood. Do this. As often as you drink of it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, all that's good and dandy. We love that. We get that. We're going to do that. Praise the Lord. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Truth number three, truth number three. The Lord's Supper is the symbol of our unity with Christ and each other. So here's what Paul's envisioning here. The Lord's Supper, when you assemble together, it's a moment in church life where we come together, we remember Christ together, we proclaim Christ together, and we examine ourselves together to see if our lives match up with what we're saying we believe. And you stop and you assess, is my life, is there sin that I'm befriending more than I'm befriending Jesus? The Lord's Supper is an opportunity, right, to remember what Christ has accomplished for you and then ask, am I living in light of that together with these people? 1 Corinthians 10, 16, this is what he says about the cup. He says, the cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. We all partake in the one bread. So this is what we do as a church. We get together and we participate in this gospel. And basically what the Lord's Supper is, is an opportunity for us to repent and believe together. Right? To actively repent and believe together. Now, the problem is, in Corinth, there's a person assembling and eating, but he's not really believing or repenting. And what 1 Corinthians 11 would say, he's eating and drinking judgment on himself. He is self-deceived. He may be potentially deceiving others to embrace the sin he's embracing. And Paul is saying, you, church, are arrogant for not loving this man enough to warn him. That though he takes the Lord's Supper today in this assembly, he may not be with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb in eternity. And you smilingly poured the cup for him and said, good luck. Are you not rather to mourn, Paul says? What's the church supposed to do? Well, apparently verse 2 says, let him be removed from among you. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 8, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven. And all this may sound very judgmental to you. But if I ever get into the place spiritually where I'm not repenting of my sin, and I'm turning my back on Jesus, I pray to God you guys would love me enough to come tell me that I'm going down the wrong road you got to get the particulars right about this because everything in our souls wants to accuse everybody else in the world about, for being judgmental, right? So we got to get the particulars of the nuance of this text because this text uses some language that you're uncomfortable with using and we need to understand why am I uncomfortable using the language that the Bible uses. Look at the next paragraph, last paragraph, last truth, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5. The particulars are important here. We got to pay careful attention because we can misapply this scripture. We can apply this poorly. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or in the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you to not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And here's the biggie here. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Is this commanding me to judge people? Verse 13, God judges those outside. Implication, the, the assumption, you're to judge those who are inside. You're supposed to call one another out. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, there's a whole other sermon in this paragraph, if I'm being honest, but I've got seven minutes left, all right, on my timer. <laughs> there's a whole other sermon here, so let me try to summarize the paragraph, all right, with one final truth, and then we'll tease out the details. Truth number four, final truth, one of the big ideas here. We address sin in the church for Christ's namesake in the world, we address sin in the church for Christ's namesake in the world. Now, let's break the paragraph down. Verse 9. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, notice a couple things. Apparently, he's already written to them about this. He's already given instruction on this. Do not associate with sexually immoral people. Now, notice that it's not just something that they do. This is something that is defining them does not mean people who simply had a moral failing, made a mistake, then repented of it. This sin, which is identifies them, it defines them. But here's the clarification. Here's the clarification that's so important for us in this room. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. So I'm not talking, I'm not encouraging you to avoid sinners out there in the world. That would be totally contrary to our mission of God. We're supposed to go into a broken world full of sinful people with the love and grace of Jesus. We're supposed to build relationships so that we can tell them there's a better way. There's forgiveness. There's life eternal. There's life abundantly. We're supposed to go into the dark spaces. Jesus has eaten with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. I mean, I, some of you, I didn't recommend the prostitute part, but, but he was perfect, right? So he's, 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 he's filling in the, his time with people who are broken and sinful, right? So it's like, well, wait a minute. Well, Paul says, no, 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 I'm not telling you to go out of the world. That's what some monks have done over throughout Christian history. They've said, oh, I need to be holy, therefore I will separate myself entirely from the world. And Paul's saying, do not do that. Do not disassociate with the world. We're on a mission in the world. Okay, well, who am I supposed to disassociate with? He repeats that several times. Verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Ah. The concern is when someone bears the name of brother but then lives like the world. In other words, if he claims to be a Christian, if he claims to be a brother or sister in the church family, yet he lives like the world every day of the week, do not associate with that person. Don't even eat with such one. So, so thus far, we've seen some motivations. This is why we do something like remove someone from church membership. For the love of that person, for the love of our church, because we don't want it to spread through this whole thing, and for the love of the world, because we want the world to see a right representation of the Jesus we love. This is the new motivation he gives. We want to preserve the name for the watching world. We recognize the world is watching the church so they might see what Jesus is like. Their understanding of Jesus is based off of the Jesus that they see in our assembly. 
And when you got baptized, you were baptized not in the name of Brandon or the name of whatever church that you were at. You were, you were baptized in the name of the fullness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You, you became an ambassador, a representative of Jesus, King Jesus. And how much damage has been done in the world by people who claim to be followers of Jesus who look nothing like Jesus. And Paul cares about the name of Christ being represented well, so much so that he says, don't be mistaken to be like, you're that guy. Don't even eat with that guy. So the world would not look upon and think that's what our Jesus is like, because it's not. Paul cares about the name of Jesus. Now, 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 what in the world do we do with that, right? Don't even have table fellowship with that person. Now, does this mean, are we supposed to... Someone claims to be a Christian in our church and then abandons the faith and says, I'm done with that or whatever. Like, does that mean that, that we totally ignore that person? Some people have interpreted that excommunication means like don't associate with that person at all. Make them feel the weight of their decision. And here's where I land on this text. I believe at the very least, at the very least, when he says don't even eat with such a one, Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper here. Do not partake in the supper symbolizing your unity with someone who is not really united to you or to the Lord. And I think at the very least, that's what it means for the sake of that person, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the name in the world. And just in case we want to soften it or ignore this, or in case there's an attempt to, to be judgmental on the non-Christians out there, he provides one more clarification, verses 12 and three, 13. Just in case you missed it, verse 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The command is crystal clear here. Now the application of it it's difficult for us to figure out by the leading of the Spirit. But the command is crystal clear here. The church has a responsibility to address the sin, the lies of those who bear the name of a brother. And the language he uses, and if you want to do study, if you want to study further, we don't have the time in this moment to go into all this, but if you want to take your study a step further, look up that phrase, purge the evil person from among you, and read it in its context throughout Deuteronomy. He's quoting Deuteronomy. And what you'll find in the Old Covenant was that God's law was enforced by penalty of law. Purity in Israel was kept by legal sentencing, sometimes including the death penalty. And what we have here is in the new covenant of God's people, there's no death penalty. We don't take people out in the street and stone them. Why? The death penalty's been paid. <laughs> Christ has taken our death penalty. Christ has offered grace and mercy. We have only believed in him, and, and that propels us to repent of sin. There's mercy that has been made possible by the blood of Jesus. And so why quote Deuteronomy in this context? We're not stoning people. Why would you quote that? Because he's making a point. God's not calling you to stone anybody anymore. The, the blood price has been paid, but he is calling his people to be pure, <laughs> to be holy, to care about the name of God represented to the nations. So truth number four was this. We address sin in the church for Christ's name's sake in the world. So what do we do with all this? 
We're gonna take the Lord's Supper here in a moment with these things pressing in on our mind. And there's three responses that we're gonna have that I wanna encourage you to have as you take the Lord's Supper. So three responses, three takeaways as I bring this to a close. That's a lot, I know. If you miss pieces and portions of it, I would love to talk with you after and we can parse some of these things out, but this is what I want you to walk away with. Number one, praise God for Christ's finished work. First Corinthians has painted the picture of the local church to be like God's temple, God's ever-growing and expanding temple across all the world. And it's a beautiful picture of who we are that God is present with us, that we were built to be this display of his glory, built on one another as living stones with Jesus being the foundation. But here's the deal. That whole project, the whole beauty of that is only possible if the blood of the lamb was shed for you. The good news of Jesus is that right now, no matter how far away you are from God, how much you've sinned, you can be forgiven of that sin. You can be freed from that sin. What, What is required of you? It's not a holy life. That's not what's required of you. What's required is faith in Jesus who will help you to live a holy life and forgive you of all of the unholy things you've done in your life. Praise God that it is finished by Christ and not by us. And let a thanksgiving for the work, finished work of cr- the cross, let, let that thanksgiving of the finished work of Christ drive you to get to work. <laughs> Number two, what we're going to do in the time as we prepare for Lord's Supper is we're going to address the sin in our hearts that Christ died for. Positionally, we stand right before his eyes one day completely, presently. We got sin to fight. That's bad for us and the people we love. That's bad for our walk with the Lord. What, where, what are the areas in your life that you have said, oh, that's just a little leaven? It's not that big a deal. That's just a small disobedience. That's just a, that's just a category of life where, you know, I give Christ reign over all this over here, but this one category, I'm going to stay king of my life. What, what is that? Because I guarantee you right now, it's not going to stay small forever. Address the sin in your heart Christ died for. And then number three, last one, commit to live for Christ's namesake in the church. This means not just caring about the sin in your own heart, but caring about the sin in the hearts of the person next to you. The mission of God is a group project. And we're in this together, helping each other. But when we take the Lord's Supper together, we're saying something, not just about me, but the person who's also partaking it. We're saying that we're in this together, saved by the same blood and the same body broken for us. And so in a moment when we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're doing these things, we're praising God for his finished work. We're assessing our hearts and our lives. We're, we're co- repenting and committing to live more fully for his namesake. In a second, we're going to do that. And what the Lord's Supper does, it becomes this dividing line in the room. It forces you to make a decision. Am I one of the people of God? Like, have I trusted Jesus or have I not? And if you have not, if you're not a baptized believer and you, you, you're not, committing to Christ, let the cup pass, let the bread pass, sit in the room, and talk to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to obey 
this text. Let's celebrate the festival together. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Father, may our foundation be that the work is finished by Christ, our Passover lamb. Help us to remember what you did for us on the cross. Help us to respond appropriately in worship as we think about our sins uh, and repent of them and mourn over them. May we rise to rejoice that every one of them is forgiven as we take the cup and take the bread. Father, we pray, help us to worship now over the next few minutes. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.